Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Okay, so just to introduce myself, my name is Bobby, um, and I'm a member of this church. And um, to be quite honest, like, this issue is too big for me. Like, it's so, so, so big, so complex. I'm under no illusion of, you know, I don't have the capacity to deal with this issue, but God does. Um, and it's such a sensitive, complex, deep, personal, personal issue that it can only really be unfolded in transparency. So I just really pray that this is um, an atmosphere of complete transparency. So like we've been praying and we want this to be a safe environment for everybody. Um, whatever stage of you know your sexual journey that you may be in, whether you're a teenager, whether you're married, um, single, widow, whatever, um, but whatever point in that journey, we want this environment to be a safe place where you have complete freedom just to um, discover more of God in your sexuality. Um, anything I say today, please don't take my word for it. Like, you're going to have to go back to the Word of God, and you're going to make sure that whatever I say lines up with the Word of God, and you're going to have to make sure that, um, you know, that you have the conviction that I have, because I can stand in, I can say whatever I'm going to say, but it has to be real, real to you, basically. Um, for me, the reason I'm standing here is because, as a church... Like, we've been silent about sexuality for so, so, so long. Like, we haven't talked about it. And because we haven't talked about it, the world and the, the enemy has been able to define what sexuality is. And as a result of it, there is so much brokenness when it comes to sexuality. Like, there's even brokenness in this room, you know, and I don't know what that looks like for each individual, but... Yeah, God just wants to meet each and every one of us where we're at. And we as a church, like we've got the answer to a broken generation. Like half the reason that people can't connect with God in this generation is because they can't see God in their sexuality. And because sexuality is such a foundational part of who we are, like we're sexual beings. We were sexual before we were sinners, before sin even entered into the garden, before that we already had a sexual identity. And God actually wants us, I believe, to be celebrating that and be awakened in that because the key to that is the key to this generation. And because people can't connect God with their sexuality, they keep God out. They close the door on God because they think that God doesn't like sexuality. They'll never see God as an advocate of sexuality. And God is an advocate. God is the one who wants us to have such a phenomenal, beautiful sexuality. And when we walk in that as the church, when we're bold, when we're unapologetic about it, then we're going to make such a difference in this generation. And people will, in the name of Jesus, be set free. So I really pray that today you guys get inspired. I can't, like, even though I'm going to be teaching for a really long time, just brace yourselves, but um, 
I can't tell you about your journey. I can't tell you about your sexuality. But what I would love to do today is to inspire us to go higher. Because God has a supreme plan for our sexuality. Wherever we are, God's got an incredible plan for the way he wants to function as sexual beings. And I just pray that some of what I say today would propel you to go higher, to not settle for a counterfeit, to not settle for what um, is substandard or mediocre, and it would propel you to go even higher with God. Um, I'm just going to outline what these sessions are going to include. So today, um, we're going to be looking at um, the whole idea of one flesh. So we're going to look at sacred sex, and we're going to look at how that Um, what that looks like from a one flesh perspective. And then we're going to look at um, what that looks like when the one flesh principle is violated. Okay, so that's what we are going to look at today. And then in the next session, we're going to look at the struggles, the main struggles that we can face when it comes to um, sexual struggles or sexual sin. So we're going to be looking at um, fornication. So adultery, homosexuality, premarital sex, um, all of those things we're going to look at at the next session. On session three, it's going to be love versus lust. So what are the, um, I guess, what are the things that influence us in order for us to determine what is love or what is lust? And what is ultimately true intimacy. That's the third session. The fourth session is going to be all about single sexuality and sacred dating. And then session five is marital sex. And then session six is going to be looking at, um, I guess, the deep wounds that a misinterpretation of sexuality has caused. So it could be abortion. It could be abuse. It could be that, you know, you lost your virginity before you wanted to. All of those things, we're going to address those. And then it's going to be a place for us to um, be empowered and think about ways that we can resist temptation, how we can be empowered in our uh, sexuality, in our purity. And there'll be some prayer and some impartation. After every single session, um, there's going to be prayer available. Um, Yeah at the back there. So after the session, if you do want prayer, then please um, just pop yourselves onto one of the seats. We've got an amazing prayer team and they'll be able to um, pray with you. Now I'm going to say something like what I'm about to do is I'm about to actually just lay everything that I am on the line. Like I'm going to be so transparent. I'm going to be so real. So I would love to know that this is actually an honest place for me to do that. So I just want you guys to completely relax and like I want to... Like, I really pray that you are here to be free and that you're here to be, I don't know, to be wild for Jesus. Because I don't want to stand here and, like, be completely naked before every single one of you and literally tell you the ins and outs of my story or what I feel God is saying um, if there's going to be a wall up. So I just pray that every single one of you right now just opens up your heart. In fact, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for every single person that's um, 
sitting here in this session. I thank you, God, for um, their pursuit of you. I thank you for their hunger and their thirst to invite you into their sexuality. I thank you for the bold move that they have made by being here. And I declare that nothing is going to get in the way of them stepping into that place of freedom and getting a deeper insight into who you are and what you have for them and what an incredibly gorgeous, fun, adventurous God you are and that the gift of sexuality that you have reserved for us, that it's available to each and every one of us and so we don't have to settle for anything less. And I just ask God that this would be an open environment, that this would be an honest environment and an environment of transparency and acceptance. I come against every spirit of judgment. I come against every spirit of scrutiny. I come against every single spirit of prejudice. And I declare that every single heart that is here is open. It's so open. And I declare that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I declare that this is a merciful place. Because you are a merciful God. And I just thank you that mercy is available here for every single person, no matter what their history, no matter what their, their current situation, mercy in bucket loads is available today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I did say that we're going to have a Q&A, but I haven't had any questions, so we're not going to have a Q&A. Um, if, if along the line you say that you do have questions, then um, potentially we could tackle them, but we'll just um, see how it goes. Okay, so I'm going to begin. So basically, God is um, all about sex, okay? Contrary to what anyone may have said or what the world may make you think, God is all all about sex. And it's not mediocre, run-of-the-mill, average sex. God is about toe-curling, incredible, mind-blowing sex. And if you think that's weird, you don't know God. So if this is something that you're like, okay, oh my gosh, this is too much for me, like this is just the beginning, I'm going to go deep. Okay, I'm really sorry. This is not for the faint-hearted, all right? So if any of you think that this is crude or, you know, like compared to the world, I'm quite tame. You know, the stuff that we've been desensitized with when it comes to the music videos and when it comes to what people say in the classrooms and the top deck of a bus and blatantly wherever you go, people are swearing and people are crass. Like they're, they're just so desensitized to what is truly profane. So please don't sit in the church and don't think for one minute that what I'm saying is like, uh, because it's not. Okay, but what it is, is it's truth. And I just pray that um, you'll be able to receive that. Yeah, so... The thing with God is that um, for some reason, even though he's all about wild sex and adventurous sex and fun sex and meaningful sex, powerful sex, he's the author of it. But somehow Satan and Hollywood and the world has been credited with things like erotic passion and orgasms and having so much fun in the bedroom and God lumbered with the missionary position or just procreational sex like just boring okay right so we need to have sex I suppose you know and that's what God gets lumbered with where God actually wants us to enjoy our sexuality so God's way is actually supreme 
Like he is the one who created sex. He's the one who created the orgasm. He is the one who created our sexual drive. He's the one who created um, multiple nerve endings in our erogenous zones that are not just the nerve endings that you get in your fingertips or your toes. These are nerve endings that are so heightened in order to create and, and um, foster the most incredible sexual pleasure. God did that. Okay, it wasn't the enemy, it was God. And this is our time now to actually see God as the author and the advocate of amazing sexuality. God's way is supreme because God doesn't just give us pleasure through sexuality. Because you can have pleasure even outside of God. People that don't know God can still, you know, experience extreme pleasure when it comes to sex. And anyone that tells you that sex outside of God isn't pleasurable is lying because it is. Because let's face it, a lot of sin is pleasurable. You know, if anyone tells you sin's not pleasurable, that's not true. It is. But the thing with sin is that it's fleeting and that it's not, you know, it's not actually going to ultimately lead to anything. It's destructive. It will kill you. And that's what happens. Even though you may enjoy sex outside of God, and it may even be pleasurable, it will only ultimately lead you to death. So God wants to protect us from that. And not only does he want to give us mind-blowing, pleasurable sex, he actually wants it to be enjoyed within the backdrop of heart-to-heart intimacy, with a backdrop of, backdrop of absolute joy and tenderness and transparency and peace and a wider communication that can only truly be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. Because what happens is, most of the time, even though people are looking for intimacy, they will have sex looking for intimacy, but they won't find it. And if you even, like... When a, a woman or, and a guy has sex, the woman is all about the spooning that happens after the sex. Like the woman, that for her is the favorite bit. Thanks, Helen, you get this, right? And like she's all after, you know, when they finish having the sex, when he probably sparks up a fact, she's probably thinking, I can't wait for the moment when we both actually get to lie together. We can just spoon with each other because she's looking for intimacy. But what happens in this world is though everyone is looking for intimacy and they think that sex is going to satisfy them, that's not really what sex is about. Sex is about the wider communication that takes place between two people. And it's only within marriage that this type of union can truly be transparent and truly be um, vulnerable and honest and unconditional. We read this and we know this. We know it's about marriage because in Genesis 2.24, God tells us. So feel free to turn to your Bibles, but I'm literally just going to start reading um, the scripture now. So um, in the Amplified Version, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall become united and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right, okay. So when it comes to um, Genesis 2.24, I would always get confused about the mother and the father bit because Adam and Eve are the first man and woman on earth. So how do they even understand about a mother and a father? I didn't get that. Then I heard someone in a teaching that explained that a mother and father, obviously in Jewish tradition, would the father would give the... the groom away to the bride or the bride would be given away by her her family and so what's 
here in Genesis is there's actually a marriage taking place. The father is actually giving Adam to Eve in a marriage ceremony. And we have a marriage taking place at the beginning of Genesis. We have a marriage taking place at the end of the Bible in Revelation that should already indicate to us the heavy, weighty significance of what a marriage means to God. And sex surely would only ever come under that. God wouldn't put sex outside of a principle that he begins the word of God with and he ends the word of God with. Sex would surely have to fit into that framework. But even if we don't, then even then, there's certain terms in this scripture that help us know that sex was only ever for the confinement of marriage. And we see that when it says the term one flesh, okay? So one flesh, um, the original term is ikad, and it means a grouping together. So ikad in the Bible, when it's, when it's um, used several times, it means one, it means whole. But in this scripture, it means two coming together as one. So they become a unit, two separates come together and become a unit sexually and spiritually um, physically. And then it also says, um, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and shall become united and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the term cleave, the original term for that is dabak. And dabak means to be glued. So we've got two people here that are being grouped together and they are being glued together, grouped together as one and they're being glued together. But the term dabak doesn't just mean um, glued together. It also of a and a devotion and a closeness. So what it's saying is that they are glued together and underpinning that gluing, underpinning that union is a closeness, a loyalty, a faithfulness. And so if you are loyal and faithful to one person, you then are not going to go and be unfaithful with another person. So again, this is signifying that this act of sex is taking place between two people that are loyal and faithful to each other. Further on in Genesis 4.1, it uses the term yada. Okay, and now at CCF, we've heard that term time and time again. And it says, and Adam knew Eve as his wife and she became pregnant and bore Cain. So the term yada there's um, two ways that sex is referred to in the Bible. One is sakab, and that talks of illicit sex. And then there is yada. And yada talks of heart-to-heart, mutually exclusive, mutually honoring, close intimacy type of um, relationship. That's honest and transparent. So we can say, or we can see already, that not only is God saying to become one, united together, two group into one, it, they cleave to one another, they glue to one another, and underpinning that is a closeness, and the type of sex they're having is a yada type of sex, which is faithful and exclusive. So already we know that sex was only ordained for marriage, not outside of marriage. Because outside of marriage, you cannot experience yada with someone that you're not married to. Because yada can only happen in covenant intimacy. A covenant um, intimate relationship means that you are united together for life. 
in a blood covenant anyway. So in a blood covenant, it means that you cannot be separated from one another outside of death. And so um, when, when people come together outside of a blood covenant, there's nothing holding them together. Even though the world might say that it's okay for two people to be together. Oh, what's the problem if they're not married? It's only a piece of paper. But actually, that piece of paper and that legal kind of um, agreement, it's binding to say that these two people are unconditionally going to love one another and not walk away from one another. If you don't have a covenant relationship with someone, then you could be having sex with someone for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, but there's nothing to say that you're actually going to stay with them because you're not in a blood covenant with them. And if you don't know about a blood covenant, a blood covenant... Um, is when blood mingles together of two or more people and that puts you in a binding relationship until death. We know that happens in marriage because when a husband and wife come together for the first time, as um, um, Adam and Eve did in Genesis 4.1, they had sex for the first time, and Eve, when she had sex with Adam, her hymen broke, so blood was released. So the mingling of that sperm and... Um, the blood that Eve would have uh, released, that fluid, they come together and as they mingle together, a blood covenant is cut and they are bound together for life. Every single time they have sex as a married couple, that blood covenant is re-established. So for married couples here, there should be a real powerful coming together every single time you enjoy each other in the marital bed. Because you are re-establishing your uh, marriage covenant or your blood covenant. You can't enjoy that. You can't enjoy sex outside of that because the transparency and the trust isn't there. The reason um, this is so crucial is because sexual union within marriage is a reflection it mirrors the union that we have with God so the same term yada is what we hear again and again and again when God is addressing intimate um, relationship secret place relationship with him so in the scripture in Psalm 46 10 it says be still and know it says be still and yada that he is God so God invites us into that same kind of relationship, that transparency, that nothing held back, naked before one another, completely trustworthy where God knows my fears and I know his deepest secrets. And in the secret place, we are one. We're one flesh. We, we, we become a one flesh. We come to know each other in the deepest, deepest way possible. And in our relationship with God, that increases over time. And that's the beauty of marriage. It mirrors our relationship with Jesus because we're in a covenant relationship with Jesus. When his blood was shed on the cross, the blood that he shed, and now that we believe in him, that, that um, it's cut a blood covenant. His blood released on the cross um, cut a covenant with us. So if we believe that he died for us, then we are in a blood covenant with him. And we, we are faithful to him. We do not commit spiritual adultery to him, with him. And it's the same thing in the marital bed. So sex before marriage um, or homosexual, all of those things, they are violating the marriage bed. 
This is the reason that we're um, called the Bride of Christ as well. And I kind of don't even know if I really got that until I started studying for this. It's because we're in a blood covenant with Jesus. That's why we're called the Bride of Christ. And Ephesians 5, 20-23, it talks about the mystery of um, a, a, a husband loving his wife and the same way Jesus loves his bride. So the Bible shows us again and again that marriage and sexual intimacy in marriage mirrors our covenant intimacy with God. Now, when two people come together, it should actually be it should be a pleasurable um, experience as well. Like some people think, oh, I really, I can't see the buzz of settling with one person for the rest of my life and having sex with that one person. But imagine if you are in a covenant relationship with that one person and you love everything about them and you have become one with them, with their emotions and with their soul and with their body and with their spirit and you're in this relationship with them, then when you have sex with them and you are going deeper and deeper in, in unveiling one another's identity, unveiling one another's secrets, unveiling one another's fears and insecurities. When that happens, it happens in the marriage bed. And the whole idea is that it's happening in a wider context of communication where you're talking to each other, you're getting to know one another, you're making each other's tea, you're going out shopping together, you're dreaming together, you're doing the laundry together. So when you then have sex, that sexual union is part of a wider community communication. And not only that, if you are in love with your spouse, then when you are becoming one flesh with them, you're becoming one flesh with who they are emotionally, who they are intellectually, who they are physically. So actually having sex with the same person for your whole life should be a deeply pleasurable experience because you are unveiling your spouse and who they are. They're being unveiled before you, you know, every Every single time you have sex with them, that has to be pleasurable. And God wants that. God wants the coming together of the one flesh to actually be a pleasurable experience. And the Bible tells us that sex should be pleasurable in marriage. So in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 7, verse 1 to 2, in the message translation, it says, now, getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, um, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sex life in a world of sexual disorder. What this scripture is telling us is that we live in a world of sexual disorder. Any sex that's outside of covenant marriage is sexual disorder. It doesn't matter how glamorous it is. It doesn't matter how, you know, Hollywood might portray it. It doesn't matter how acceptable or common or popular it is. Any sex outside of a covenant marriage is actually sexual disorder. But what God is saying here is that even within that, even with rampant pornography, even with um, the temptation of adultery or premarital sex, even with the the um, issues that people might have in the church with repression or outside of the church, even with all of that stuff, I am telling you that you can have a fulfilling and exciting sex life in your marriage. God tells us that. And he also tells us that even though sex drives can be strong, a marriage can contain them. For me, that's good news. 
you know, I think it's good news. Because <laughs> um, the thing with sex drives is that the church has made us believe that sex drives are perverted. And that's not true. Because like I said before, we were sexual beings before we were sinners. We all have a sex drive. And God created a sex drive as part of the sexual process in which you can get turned on when you're with your spouse. The issue with us is that we are trying to get turned on outside of our spouse. And that's where the problem kicks in. But that doesn't mean that the sex drive itself is sinful. It has the capacity to lead us to sin if we don't steward it with holiness. But what the church oftentimes has made us think is that if you have a sexual thought, you are a pervert. Okay? And I'm sorry, I don't know if maybe they don't do that at your church, they don't do that at my church, but I know that there are Christian men who probably think someone's attractive or, you know, like they let's face it, like hormones, men and women are going to feel horny. I'm really sorry if that's too much. It's the news flash, but people do feel horny, okay? Because we have hormones. But what happens is in the church, it's like, right, okay, that's evil. You're disgusting. You need to stop thinking about that. And then people end up trying to repress these feelings they have, or they think they condemn themselves. They feel shame because they actually are attracted to somebody or they're having these sexual urges and they don't know what to do with them. So what ends up happening, they repress them. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're going to get married now. You can turn it on now. And what are they going to do? Just switch it on. They can't because they've been told for the first 25 years of their life that feeling that is wrong. And they can't just switch it on and then expect to really be able to make love to their wife because that's not going to happen because now in their mind, they've got this messed up notion that every single time they get turned on, they feel perverted. Or you've got the other extreme of the world, which makes you think, okay, well, we're all animals, so shag away. You know, now if you feel horny, just go for it. As long as you're adults, as long as, you know, you're not harming anyone, you are free to just completely fulfill your sensual appetite. That's not right either. Neither one of them are correct. There's a balanced view because the angels, they have a spiritual conscience. They don't have flesh. They don't think about sex. Okay? We're not angels. Animals, we're not. <laughs> Animals, they don't have a spiritual conscience. They, you know, they just go mad if they feel like having sex with something. You see them by a tree, you know, like they go crazy. (laughs) And you're like, okay. Um, So animals have no self-control because they don't have a spiritual conscience. But we as human beings, we are in the middle and we do have a spiritual conscience and we do have flesh. So how do we balance that? For me personally, I think that you don't repress your sexual drive you acknowledge it. And what that looks like for me is waking up every day and saying, you know what, God, I, I do have these urges, but I lay them before you. I do feel that that person is really attractive, but I give you that. I yield my desires before you. I yield these, these hormones that I have. I yield these, um, you know, this drive that sometimes I think is bigger than me. I yield it before you because God... It's no surprise to God that we've got a sexual drive. He created us with it. But he also created us with the grace and the guidelines to be able to be the master of our sexual drive. We don't have to let our sexual drive rule us. 
We don't have to give in to these desires that you have. If you give in to these desires that you have, then you will end up giving in to lust because lust is the desire for an illegal pleasure. And outside of marriage, to fulfill your sexual drive is illegal. So when we feed that, we end up feeding lust. And lust, by its very nature, will never stay at the same level. Lust will always increase. It will always grow. It's insatiable. You can never just feed your lust and think it's going to stay there. So if you are someone who thinks it's okay to feed your lust or feed your sexual desires or drive outside of marriage, what's going to end up happening is what you thought you could feed it with before is not going to be enough. And by its very virtue, it will continue to increase and it will continue to take over. And ultimately, it will turn into perversion because that's the nature of lust. So God doesn't want that for us. But God doesn't want us to pretend it doesn't exist because it does exist. We do have a sex drive. We are sexual beings. And for me personally, like, I'm not sure how you guys are going to take this, but this is how it is for me. Um, like, I probably feel sexier now, yeah, as a Christian who's covered up, who doesn't have a boyfriend, doesn't have any p- impure thoughts, is holy, is sanctified before the Lord, I feel sexier now than I did when I was highly promiscuous, when I was sleeping around, when I left a lot of flesh to be revealed, when I was in the clubs, when I was talking dirty, when I was having sex constantly, I feel sexier now than I did back then. Because the thing with your sexual drive, ultimately, it's a desire to be desired. That's what sexual drive is all about, a desire to be desired. We all have a desire to be desired. But because we're the bride of Christ, everything is fulfilled in God. We don't need to look elsewhere. However, I believe that there is a place for sexual desire that can only be fulfilled in the marital bed. And for me, that's not to be awoken before you get to your marital bed. But in the kingdom, I believe that that desire to be desired can be filled from God and it can be fueled from one another. And the reason I say that is because I know for me, the brothers that I have in the kingdom... They make me feel desired, but not from an um, immoral perspective, not from a, a sexual perspective. They will look me in the eye and they will tell me, you are beautiful. They will look me in the eye and they will tell me that the man who marries you is a blessed man. They will look me in the eye and they will tell me that you are desirable and you are worthy and you are beautiful inside and out. And if we as brothers and sisters were doing that for one another, we wouldn't need to try and fill our sexual drive anywhere else. Because in the kingdom, as brothers and sisters, we need to be looking at one another as image bearers of God. It shouldn't be about sexuality. When my brother looks at me, he shouldn't see me as, you know, boobs and curves. Sorry. But he has to look at me and see that I am an image bearer of God. He should be able to appreciate my feminine beauty. And I'm not saying that because I think I'm 
pretty. I'm saying that because I have been made in the image of God. Therefore, I am beautiful. And I am a woman. And I'm not ashamed of being a woman. And I am feminine. And I am fierce. And I am tender. And at the same time, I am strong. And all the things that God was reflecting when he made women, I am those things. As with the men. The men here are strong. The men are powerful. They are leaders. They are sons of God. They are image bearers of God. I should be able to look at a brother in Christ and say, you are lovely. You are lovely. The woman who marries you is a blessed woman. When she's found by you, she is blessed. If we had more of these dynamics in the kingdom, and I'm not talking about stepping over the line. I'm not talking about being crass. I'm not talking about looking at your sister with impure motives. But I'm looking at looking beyond those things that, that force us to look at each other as objects. We are not objects. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And if there was a healthier interaction between brothers and sisters, then there wouldn't be so much kind of focus put on sexuality in the wrong way. So I personally think that our sexual drive, it's healthy, but you don't feed it. All it's really saying is that you're womanly. All it's saying is that you're masculine. And that is something to be celebrated. But you don't feed it. Because when you feed it, you give in to lust. And the beautiful thing um, about this scripture is it says, like, sex drives, marriages can contain the sex drives. Yeah, that's what it says. Imagine if your sex drive had never been tampered with and it's never been um, violated by porn and it's never been violated by lust and it's never been violated through sex before marriage and it's, and it's never been tampered with, but you acknowledge it, so you're not repressed by it. You acknowledge it. You know it's there. It doesn't scare you. It's there and you've yielded it before the Lord. Imagine when you do get married. Imagine how good the sex is going to be. Imagine how sensitive your um, sex drive would be because it's never been tampered with. It doesn't believe the lie. It only knows the truth, which is in my marriage bed, I'm going to be fully satisfied and this is worth waiting for. So I would say that when we have prayer after these sessions, if you are battling with your sex drive, if you don't know how to handle it, and you don't know how to yield it before the Lord, and you don't, you know, and it's mastering you, please get prayer, because it will just rob you of what God wants to give you in marriage. Okay, so I'm going to just share about um, a lady who had no issues with her, uh, her sexual drive in the Bible. And so we're going to look at Song of Solomon, um, chapter 2, 3 to 7. So the thing with Song of Solomon, who has read Song of Solomon before? Okay, cool. So it's like a... It's a celebration of sexual love, but it's also about desire. This whole book is about desire. It's not so much about what they do. It's more about what they say they want to do to each other. And that comes from a place of desire. So desire has its place, and it's only in the marital bed. So, as an apricot tree stands out in the forest, my lover stands above the young men in town. All I want is to sit in his shade, to taste and savour his delicious love. You can do with that what you want. He took me home with him for a festive meal, but his eyes feasted on me. Oh, give me something refreshing to eat. And quickly, apricots, raisins, anything. I'm, I'm about to faint with love. 
His left hand cradles my head and his right arm encircles my waist. Oh, let me warn you, sisters in Jerusalem, by the gazelles, yes, by all the wild deer, don't ink... Don't excite love. Don't stir it up until the time is ripe. So she's totally filled with desire. And it's not even that she, she, because like, for example, Eve would have been perfect. So I'm sure when Eve was with Adam, she would have no problem, you know, talking to him about her sexual desire for him. But she, this woman actually does have insecurities. It's because it talks about in the Song of Solomon where she says, like, don't stare at me. You know, I've been in the vineyards all my life and so I'm, you know, I'm really dark-skinned or my skin isn't smooth. So she definitely has issues or issues of insecurity. But when she's, she forgets about all that, she doesn't care about all of that. You know, so when she's talking to Solomon about how much she desires him, she doesn't hold back. She's not repressed. You know, she knows how to woo her man. And I believe that that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be men and women who in the marital relationship know how to woo one another. Don't have these hang-ups. And even with the hang-ups that you may have, to still be able to make love to each other's minds before you even get to the, you know, the actual physical act. Um, right, and then she goes on to say this, kiss me full on the mouth, yes, for your love is better than wine, headier than your aromatic oils. The syllables of your name murmur like a meadow brook. No wonder everyone loves to say your name. When my king lover lay down beside me, my fragrance filled the room. His head resting between my breasts. The head of my lover was a sachet of sweet myrrh. My beloved is a bouquet of wild flowers picked just for me from the fields of Engedi. So she's actually really, really quite vocal. Okay, so this is what Song of Solomon, uh, sorry, this is what King Solomon doesn't reply to her but at that time, but this is what he says to her in, in another part of Song of Solomon's. You're so beautiful, my darling, so beautiful. Your dove eyes are veiled by your hair as it flows and shimmers, like a flock of goats in the distance, streaming down a hillside in the sunshine. Your smile is generous and full, expressive and strong and clean. Your lips are jewel red, your mouth elegant and inviting, your veiled cheeks soft and radiant. The smooth, lithe lines of your neck command notice. All heads turn in awe and admiration. Your breasts are like fawns, twins of of a gazelle grazing among the first spring flowers, the sweet fragrant curves of your body, the soft spiced contours of your flesh invite me and I come. I stay until dawn breathes, breathes its light and night slips away. You're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love, beautiful beyond compare, absolutely flawless. <clears throat> what I love about this and what I love about God's idea about one flesh is that when two people come together in a covenant relationship and they truly love one another and they're transparent and they know each other's secrets and they know each other's dreams and desires and vulnerabilities, you come together as one flesh and minister to each other, not just physically, but emotionally as well. And what I love here is what he does is though she says, I'm insecure and don't stare at me, he ends up speaking to those insecurities from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet. He woos every single part of her. Even though she says, don't stare at me, he ends up ministering to her in her emotions, in her insecurities. He speaks to those fears in her 
during that sexual union. And so that's what God wants. God wants when two people come together in one flesh, God doesn't want it just to be physical. He wants that place of intimacy to involve like emotional intimacy where you're talking through fears and insecurities. He wants it to be sexual. He wants it to be physical. He wants it to be spiritual. And outside of this covenant relationship, that is not something that can be achieved. He also, King Solomon, goes on to say that you should literally be drunk with desire for your wife, okay? That you should be intoxicated by her sexuality. He says that in Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. So I think that we can absolutely establish here that God is an advocate of sex, okay? So I definitely, definitely think that that's non-negotiable, But whether we as Christians have exciting sex lives in our marriage is down to us. Because he's given us this as a mandate. It's up to us what we then choose to do with it. And the issue with things like um, porn and, I guess, masturbation and um, illicit sex, like the issue is that if you are involved in any of that before you get married, when you then get married, you are not going to be able to satisfy the needs of one another in this deep, deep, giving, sacrificial way. Because your understanding of what it takes for you to be turned on will be looking at, a screen where there is no covenant relationship, where there is no yada taking place, or you'll have been accustomed to satisfying yourself, so you won't even have the capacity to give in your marriage relationship because you may have built your sexual, I guess, release based on a taking perspective. And I, I, you know, I don't know if that's happened to anyone, but if it has, then we have to take it to God because God actually wants to restore it so that we become lovers, so that we know how to give. We know how to pour out in marriage because ultimately that's the whole thing with marriage. You become two people that sacrifice all that you are for the other person. And that's in the marital bed as well. And if there are things before your marriage that rob you from being sacrificial and rob you from being totally giving, then that has to be restored. The other thing is, um, God has made sex. As I said, it's like Solomon was ministering to her. He was comforting to those insecurities. And two flesh becoming one is a comforter. In the world, what often happens, and I guess sometimes in church, is that people indulge in pornography or masturbation or illicit sex or just, you know just things where they can escape when they they indulge in it or they find comfort in it when they're stressed or, you know, when they're, like, um, anxious, when they're filled with anxiety. But what's happening here, what we see in here, is that you can take your stresses, you can take your insecurities, you can take those things that get you worked up, and in the marriage bed you can be ministered in that way. What happens in the world is when we try and find a release in sex or we try and find a release in pornography from tension, once that encounter's over, you still go back to your stress. You still go back to the anxiety. It doesn't leave. It's just you manage to escape it for a moment. Whereas what happens in the marriage bed, it leaves. 
that tension and that stress actually leaves because the person that you've become one flesh with loves you unconditionally, wants you to be stress-free, knows that you're not just using their body. They know that they're actually ministering to you with their body and with their heart so that you would not have those tensions. And the same thing when it comes to if you are grieving, if you're suffering in any way, in a painful way. In the Bible, we see that um, Bathsheba, when Bathsheba and David lost their baby, David um, comforted her through sex. And so sex can really act as a comfort. So again, I have to say that if your marital bed is just about sex, you're missing out on the crazy wider yada context of what the marriage bed can actually, you know, give you and provide for you. And before I go on, I just want to um, talk about the procreation aspect of two becoming one flesh. When two people come together, there's a um, there's chemicals, bonding chemicals that get released um, and they're glued together with one another. Some of the same bonding chemicals are the chemicals that get released when a mother is breastfeeding her child and when a man... Um, is bonding with his offspring, the same chemicals that got released when they were in a sexual union get released when they have children. So your one flesh, um, you know, principle isn't just about you in marriage, it's going to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So in this society, when they tell us that a nucleus family is sufficient and they tell us that it's okay for two men to be together and raise a family, it's okay for two women to be together and raise a family, that's not true. Because when God is... Um, wanting us to procreate. He wants children to be born that have a yada relationship with him. The same way the parents have a yada relationship with him. They, he wants his children to have a yada relationship with him as well. When we have nucleus families that are made up of two men or made up of two women, that yada relationship is not being fostered. So no matter what society tells you that a nucleus family made up of two men or two women, that that's sufficient for society and we we can still have a thriving society. That's not true because a thriving society will only come when a husband and a wife are in a covenant relationship and they give birth or they adopt or they conceive and bring yada relationship into this world. And so we can't just accept what society says and think that that's okay. And the thing is with Genesis 1 and 2, anything that we're ever going to need about um, thriving in this society, thriving in this world, it was already told to us in Genesis 1 and 2. God gave us a mandate for um, what our assignment was. He showed us... Um, about the different seasons, he told us what to eat, like everything that we're ever going to need to thrive on earth was instructed to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And that included a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman getting married and procreating and bringing children into this world and subduing the earth and filling it. So, um, how does that get violated? So how does one flesh get violated? Satan violates the one flesh because of just the stuff that we've looked at. The one flesh principle is so deep and it's so powerful. So what the enemy wants to do is he wants to violate that one flesh um, principle. That's what I feel from what I've just been um, studying. And the way that he does it is obviously he brings sexual disorder. So 
when I said that yada is the word in the Old Testament for um, sex that is marital and is covenant sex, then outside of that you have zakab or you have bo. And these two types of sex, they refer to the mechanical act of sex or penetration, and they always refer to illicit sex. Okay, so the Bible shows us that there's holy sex and there's unholy sex. And then in the New Testament, you have the word porneia, which is where we get pornography from, and that's also translated fornication. So that, you know, adultery and homosexuality and premarital sex, all of that fits under fornication. So what the enemy does is he will bring that into the world and he will use that to create sexual disorder. Every single type of porneia is abuse. Even though it might not seem it, even though it might be glamorous and it might be attractive, but it's abuse to our bodies. And we know that because it says in um, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, there is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with another. So that's sex within marriage, God-modeled love. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. When I used to read that, when I, when I wasn't walking in like proper holiness, but I was a Christian and I was um, battling, I was at Bible school and um, going to church every week and I'd been baptized, but I was also constantly backsliding and constantly falling in sexual sin. And I literally felt so condemned and I would always read this. And the thing that would always stand out to me was when, you know, basically don't go squandering what God paid such a high price for. And that would make me feel so, that would make me feel so bad. I'd be like, oh my gosh, how can I do this? Like Jesus died to give me this body and I'm just having sex with it and da, 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 da. And I'd feel so, 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 so bad. But now that I know God deeper, much deeper, the thing that stands out for me is different. Yes, this body is blood-bought and most definitely I shouldn't have been squandering it, squandering it. But what I feel Jesus says in this is that, yeah, I did pay for your body. I did die on the cross so that your body could get redeemed. And what you're doing with your body is a violation. But what I feel he's saying is that even though I paid a price for it, and that alone should mean you shouldn't be messing with it, but what the key issue here is that your body wasn't built for this stuff. Your body is so beautiful, is so precious, so worthy. Don't violate it. Don't you know that I've created your body for the most supreme kind of love? Don't just give it away. Don't just touch it in that manner. Don't just watch porn and abuse your body in that way. Your body is created for such majesty. So now when I look at that, I feel God's like, oh my gosh, don't you know? There's so much more for that body of yours. Don't violate it. And when I was um, highly promiscuous, I never would have thought I was abusing my body. I was abused as a child and I knew that that was abuse because it was against my will. 
But then when I was at the height of my pr- promiscuity and I was sleeping with whoever I wanted to and I was, um, I could have any man that I wanted to and I thought that, that was sexual freedom. I thought, yeah, I'm there, you know. I thought to myself, yeah, I used to carry condoms around. I know that you will never, ever be able to look at me the same again, but I don't care because I am delivered. And I used to carry condoms around and, you know, I was like so, so, so perverse. But I never would have thought that that sexual freedom where I was in control and I was in control of my body and I could use it how I wanted, when I wanted, with whoever I wanted, I had no idea that it was exactly the same as the abuse that I had had as a child. There was no difference between the two. The abuse I suffered as a child was abuse to my body and the sexual freedom that I violated my body with was also abuse. And the enemy, what he does is he thinks that, he makes us think that because they're essential appetites, that it's our right to be able to fulfill them. But God's like, don't you know, I've built you for covenant relationship. Don't squander your body away and jeopardize your capacity to have an exclusive monogamous relationship in marriage. Because that's what we've been created for. And so when we have sex outside of marriage, we actually jeopardize and damage our capacity to be loyal to one another and to actually enjoy a marital sexual union. And not just sexually, but just to be loyal relationally with our marriage partner. And the reason that this is so like profound is because the whole idea of ICAD, where I said to become one flesh and when the cleaving takes place and the gluing takes place. So when that happens in a husband and wife union, then a godly soul tie takes place because you've got a physical and a spiritual, um, sexual, emotional tie taking place. That's a godly soul tie. But if that happens outside of marriage, a soul tie is still taking place It's just not godly. The issue is, though, like we know that, okay, physically and um, sexually you become one with another person and spiritually you become one with another person, but you also chemically become one with another person. Physiologically, neurologically, you become one with another person. And there are non-Christian researchers that will tell you that. Their research has shown that we as human beings, and this is non-Christian research, we as human beings have been created with bonding mechanisms that were put in us to foster marriage, to foster the stable, exclusive marriage relationship. Those bonding mechanisms are stored within us there to come alive and to be released when we have sexual intercourse in marriage. They're there to help us and condition our mind to know what it means to be loyal and exclusive and faithful to one person. And this is non-Christian research. And the way these bonding mechanisms happen is that when you actually have sex with somebody, you have different chemicals that are released. In um, men and women, there's a chemical called, called oxytocin that's released. Now, Oxytocin affects a woman more. In fact, all the chemicals affect women more. That's why women get hurt a lot more. And they get emotionally attached a lot more. And it takes them years sometimes to get over a breakup. 
Whereas with men, they seem to kind of not be so affected by it. The reason is, is that the part of your brain that actually stores sexual memory, the woman's part is far bigger than the men's part. So although they both will have oxytocin released when they have sex with one another, it's stored in a woman's brain for far longer. And what oxytocin does, it's a bonding chemical. It's a chemical that bonds you to the person that you have sex with, and it makes you want to have sex with them again and again, and it builds an affection and a loyalty to that person, a devotion to that person. Dabak, like the term dabak. So dabak takes place. Okay. Now, this same oxytocin, as I said before, it's the same chemical that's released when a mother breastfeeds her child. Exactly the same chemical. So that bond that she has with her child, that strong song bond, is the same bond that happens between a man and a woman when you have sex. For a man, is something called vasopressin that gets released, and for him, um, it makes him desire sex with that person, and it's the same um, chemical, again, that gets released when he's bonding with his offspring. So you have a man and a woman who are engaging with one another, swapping these chemicals, having these chemicals released in one another, attaching themselves to each other, and as a result, what ends up happening, when that's done again and again and again and again, you are then making those connections with lots of different people. But you don't even have to do it repeatedly. Even done once before marriage, it has the capacity to damage your ability to be able to have a stable, exclusive relationship. And that's non-Christian research. And what they... Um, there's also like dopamine as well. Like dopamine is what gets released when you do something that gives you a thrill and a rush. That's why people get addicted to pornography because dopamine is um, addictive. And so when you, when you do something like really uh, thrilling or exhilarating, so dopamine gets released. And th again, that makes you want to do the same thing again and again and again. So you've got these three chemicals, that at least three, that get released when you have sexual intercourse with somebody else. Now, two of these chemicals, oxytocin and um, vasopressin, when they get released, they are no like respecter of values. They don't care if what you're doing is positive or if what you're doing is negative. They don't care if you're in an exclusive marriage relationship or if it's a one-night stand. It doesn't differentiate between the two. It will still attach you to your partner. That's why if, you, if sometimes you make the mistake, as I did, like I remember getting to this point in my promiscuity where I was so broken and I just was looking for love in all the wrong places and I just decided at that point that I was just going to sleep around and it was going to be sex only and it was going to be non-committal and I wasn't going to care about any of these people. Yet every single time I had sex with a person, I would break on the inside. Because these chemicals that are being released, it doesn't care about what you said in your mind. It doesn't care about your intention. It doesn't care that you said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to get attached to that person. It doesn't care about any of that stuff. Those chemicals, they still get released. So neurologically, we attach ourselves to somebody else, which is why in marriage, those chemical, um, I guess, attachments strengthen your marriage. But 
outside of marriage, when you try and break up, what happens is two or three chemicals are actually trying to separate. That's why it's so painful, because neurologically, chemicals are trying to separate inside your system. That's just what's happening inside chemically. Imagine all the spiritual stuff that's taking place and all the strongholds that are taking place when that happens. And that's the thing. That in itself is bad enough, but then there's all the spiritual stuff that comes with it. And just before I move to the spiritual stuff is that you might think, well, I'm not having sex with anybody, so you know this doesn't really affect me. But there's a tendency in the church to overcompensate for the fact that we're not having sex, and so you attach yourself to someone emotionally, and then you're on the phone to them till like three o'clock in the morning, and you're Facebooking each other, and you're WhatsApping each other, and you know, you know, you're stalking them on Facebook like every 10 seconds, you know, like, oh, let me just see what he's doing or let me just see what she's doing. So that emotional connection is still being made. And the thing with dopamine is that dopamine will get released even by the touch of a hand. It doesn't have to be sexual. So if you are intimate with somebody, even emotionally, even though there's no sex involved and you've become intimate with somebody emotionally, then there is still a tendency to get addicted to that person. There's still a tendency for dopamine to be released, which is then harder for you to then break up with that person, even if you never even physically got, you know, anywhere with them. So that's just something that, you know, we need to be mindful of in the church that we don't give our hearts away to compensate for the fact that we're not, you know, you know, that we're not having sex. So it's okay for us to speak to one another till six o'clock in the morning, but it's not because we have to draw the line and have some boundaries in place. So spiritually, um, there's a few things that also take place when an ungodly soul tie um, takes place. When you date somebody, like with me, there was a season where I really wanted to be black. Yeah, sorry. And you might just think that's weird. But when I was listening to R&B music, honestly, Dej, when I was listening to R&B... <laughs> Thanks, Jason. So, basically, when I had my first boyfriend at 16, I was listening to all this R&B music, like Jodeci and Boys to Men and all of that stuff. And I used to, like, tie my hair, like, really tight, you know, like, with the top knot, like someone out of the music videos. And all the boys I wanted to go out with were black. And then when I got into house music and ecstasy pills, then all the guys that I was dating was white, you know. And I just think that... It all just comes together. It's like what you end up engaging in, there's such a transference of spirits that you end up entering into stuff. It doesn't, you know, just by being around them, just by entering into that culture, just by entering into that realm, there's a transference of spirits that you don't even know that has happened. And that's why you can have someone, you know, like you get women who sometimes always end up with a bad boy. They always end up with someone who's violent towards them or, you know, always gets in trouble. So they leave that relationship and then they step away. And then somewhere out of the blue, another guy comes along exactly the same. And there's like this thing on her forehead that says, I'm a victim. But because it's the spirit that's operating behind, because spirits recognize one another. Spirits are attracted to one another. Spirits complement one another. So if there's a controlling spirit, and he eyes up that victim spirit and that weak spirit, he's going to hone in on her. And that's the thing. Sometimes we don't really realize what's happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. And we are fighting a spiritual battle. It's not just about what you see on the surface. It's not about just sensual appetites. It's not just about wanting to get with someone behind the scenes. 
means we have an enemy and he wants to still kill and destroy and he will use our sexuality and our sexual desires in order to do that. So when it comes to transference of spirits, we have to be very, very careful. The same way iron sharpens iron. So if you're around somebody who's good for you, then you two are going to sharpen one another. If you're around somebody, you're having a relationship with somebody who's got a spirit of lust or has got a spirit of anger or a spirit of um, addiction, then that will transfer because that's how the spiritual realm works. And then it can get really, really extreme. So obviously we know a transference of spirits, like um, STDs, you know, that's an obvious transference of spirits because it's a manifestation of bacteria, of disease, and it comes from ungodly soul ties. But then it can get really extreme. And I just want to talk a little bit about um, <clears throat> sex demons. So for some of you, you might just be like, what the frick? But I'm telling you, sex demons are real. And the spiritual realm is real. And sometimes I think that in the West, sometimes I think we don't really understand that. You know, we don't understand about the spiritual realm. We don't understand what's happening behind the scene. Whereas if you're like from an Asian culture or like an African culture, you understand that the occult and the dark side and the spiritual realm is so real. So for me, there's no surprise that sex demons or demons exist. And the reason I know that is because I was attacked by one. And that's why I'm so militant, because the day I was attacked by a sex demon, they're called like incubuses. So you get an incubus, which um, is a male demon, has sex with women in their sleep or sometimes when they're awake. Then you get a succubus that takes on a female form and will have sex with um, a male in their sleep occasionally when they are awake. Now, these demons, they will only operate legally, okay? They will never come into your life unless you've given them legal right. And for me, I gave them legal right. Not me to begin with, but when I was growing up, because of the molestation, because of the abuse, I believe that that built a stronghold of... um, lust in my soul and as a result of it I went on to be very very promiscuous and reading like adult books and being really pornographic and talking filthy and all of that stuff so over time my own sin added to the sexual perversion when I then got um, became a Christian and then I tried to really in my own strength be holy and I failed because now I was now living a double life so when I was baptized and at Bible school and all of that stuff, because I was still engaging in sexual intercourse and I was stumbling and I was falling. That's what gave this incubus legal right to come into my life. And I was having visits from incubuses since the age of 13. I was being visited by sex demons, but I just didn't register. Because what happens is in those um, dreams, you, you end up having an orgasm. And again, that might be a bit wild for you guys, but honestly, that's what happens. And you think it's a romantic dream and you think, oh my gosh, what was that? But what you don't realize, it's the demon manifesting as that person in your dream and actually raping you. You don't even realize that. And because it was happening in my sleep, I did not even clock that that is what was happening. And to be quite honest, all along, I think even as a Christian back then, a part of me didn't really even believe that God was completely real. And so because I didn't believe God was entirely real, I was never really going to believe demons were real. But then one night, 
I was off my nut. I'd taken, um, I smoked loads of weed and I was very, very drunk. But then by this time I was sober and I was going into um, the bathroom to like brush my teeth so I could go to sleep. And literally I had an incubus who came and actually had sex with me while I was wide awake. And it was so scary because he was strangling me and he was holding down my um, wrists and I knew exactly what was happening. I was crying my eyes out and I thought, okay, this is it. It's game over. I am going to die. And I could hear like switches going off and noises and I did not think I was going to make it alive that night. But I did. And what I realized that if demons are real, God must be real. And that's when I gave my life to the Lord. And I then, for the next two years even though the demons were still around, like I couldn't live in my house, even though I did live in my house, I had to leave for a couple of months and they were still there the whole time. And I'd be in my classroom because I was a teacher back then and I'd be, you know, writing on the board and they would be molesting me as I was writing on the board and I'd just weep. I didn't want to go home. Like I lived in fear for like two years. Like I was a wreck. I didn't know anyone that had ever been through a situation like this. I completely felt alone. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, like what a freak. I felt like a freak. And God in those two years just taught me how to worship. And he taught me that even, you know, when your enemy is there, it's not, if I remove the enemy, it's not where your peace comes from. Your peace has to come from me being right there at the same time as your enemy. And as he began to do that over the next two years, I learned how to worship. And I worshipped and I worshipped and I worshipped until I became strong enough to go to sleep in my house even when demons were there. And eventually what ended up happening is the demons stopped because now I was walking in total holiness. I wasn't sexually active. I wasn't taking any drugs. I wasn't doing anything. I was pursuing God like crazy. But every so often these demons would still come back. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, God, I don't get it. Like my faith would just dilute because I'd be like God I'm walking with you I'm walking in holiness like I'm pure I'm not doing anything wrong my heart is for you why is it that these demons still get to come and rape me every now and again and God said to me that you are allowing them in and I did not get that but over time I began to realize because what happens is like I said they can come in but only legally and the ways that they come in is either through sexual sin through um, a soul tie that you may have with someone else who is in sexual sin. They can come in through witchcraft. They can come in through um, fear. Uh, they can come in through carnality. And this is what God showed me. If you are too carnal, you will open the door to the devil. Because what that night when I was lying in my bed, and I literally, I call it rape, okay? Because it was against my will. When I was being raped... I felt God say that it's the spirit of the world that is raping you. The spirit of the world. And the word tells us about the spirit of the world. About the lusts of the flesh. And the pride and all of that. And so when he said to me, the incubus kept coming back. And when God said to me, you keep letting him in. I then realized a few years down the line that every single time... I engage with the spirit of the world, I would let him in. And so I remember one night when I'd gone dancing, and I don't listen to secular music, but I was out with some friends and we were just, you know, dancing and um, I had a couple of glasses of wine, by no means drunk whatsoever, but I was definitely having a good old dance. And 
Yeah, I was Jason. <laughs> um, and and I don't listen to secular music, but that night they were playing all these old tunes and I was just like, yeah, I haven't heard this for ages. And I was going wild. And then that same night I had an incubus visit me. And God showed me that every single time you step into engagement with the spirit of the world and you let the spirit of the world satisfy you and you feed yourself with the spirit of the world, you give legal right for that same spirit to come back and violate you. So carnality can open the door to spirits like this. If it's really, really bad, you know, if you're addicted to TV or if you're addicted to some kind of carnal um, activity that you are a slave to, although it's got nothing to do with sexuality, it can open the door. Um, another thing that these, because what these um, demons do, that they come in and they, as I said, they, they will give you an orgasm. So some women, they actually... I guess find comfort in that. Like I personally, when it happened to me, I just, I wanted that thing out of my life and I became militant about doing whatever I could to make sure that that thing didn't come back in my life. But there are some women that actually find comfort in it. You can have some women that may be single, may not be having sex and they have an incubus visit them and it becomes a familiar spirit. And because incubuses are territorial, they're, sexual aggressors so if someone gives you way and and gives you that place and gives you that position in their life then they will come and be territorial so if you are in any way being visited by incubuses in your sleep or when you are awake that is not of god and it has to stop because there's so much destruction there, and it will continue to lead to perversion. Another thing that um, they do is they, because the whole point of what they're trying to do is they're trying to instill you with fear. They're trying to subdue you so that you would find comfort in um, in sexual perversion, or you'd find comfort in carnal things, or you'll get really scared and that you will fear God, I'm sorry, you will um, lack faith. So you'll fear so much that you'll lack faith and that it will dilute your faith. That's the whole point of what they do. And so they try and instill fear in you. They'll even show you like graphic images. They'll come and really, really try and terrorize you. They will come and try and rob you of peace while you're sleeping so that actually you cannot sleep. And again, what they're trying to do is to subdue you and to make you literally drowsy with fear. But because you can't sleep, because you fear them, you'll then engage in sexual perversion or you'll engage in more carnality. And you literally become almost like robotic in your fear. And I... Honestly, not saying any of this stuff to put fear in any of you because sexual sin is not something that you stop just by someone saying, oh, don't do that because this is what might happen. Because it just doesn't work. But what my heart is today is to say that there's a higher, higher, supreme gift of sex that God wants to give his children. And he wants us to come up higher. He doesn't want us to... (coughs) settle for counterfeits. He doesn't want us to settle for masturbation. He doesn't want us to settle for pornography. He doesn't want us to settle for finding our desire, our need for our desire in just anyone. He doesn't want us to settle for a marriage bed that is not exciting. He doesn't want us to settle for repression. He doesn't want us to settle for um, 
thinking that you're undesirable or seeing one another as objects. He has such a high, high, high gift that he wants to give us. That's to do with our femininity, to do with our masculinity, to do with the way that we walk and the way that we talk and how we will radiate in this world. So it's important to not, you know, don't care about what I've said in terms of, oh, don't do this or don't do that. That's not my heart. My heart is seek a higher place. So I just pray. I know I've, I've gone on and on and on and on, but I just, I really feel that this is what God wanted. And so there is going to be prayer available. If anyone's battling with anything, please take advantage of that prayer. However big or however small, not sure what part of your journey you are on. Or maybe you're just like, okay, you know what? I really, I want this for myself. I want, you know, I've never been with a guy or a girl and I just, um, I want to see sexuality through God's eyes. You might just be excited that, hey, okay, so God's got this amazing gift of sex. I want to, I want to live it. Like I want to celebrate it. Whatever your perspective is, whether you need prayer because you need healing or you need deliverance, or if you just need prayer where you just really want to be good stewards of your sexuality, whatever it is, please take advantage of um, the prayer team that are just going to be taking um, a seat. And or you might want to journal, you might want to, you know, I don't know, take a moment just to be with God. But whatever it is, please know that God is so relevant in your sexuality and he's hungry for us to rewire our desire towards him he's hungry for us to take all of our desires all that we have got bubbling inside of us and to make him the focus of it because when we do that we will live in a supreme way and we will be powerful and we will be the key that this generation needs to truly walk in freedom So I'm just going to close in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for today. Yeah, I just pray, God, that you would do only what you can do. I just thank you for every single person that's here. And I pray, God, that that you would meet them where they're at, Lord, and just that you would cement the things that are from you. And anything that's not from you that I've said, Lord, I pray that you would erase it from their minds right now. And I pray that this session would just propel us to just go deeper with you and go higher in that place of identity as image bearers of Christ, Lord. And we do yield our sexuality before you. We absolutely yield our sexuality before you, head to toe, sacred, sanctified sexuality before you. And we just thank you that you help us to see ourselves through your eyes and see one another through your eyes with such love, such transparency, such openness. And I just declare freedom in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 